opportunity um, to be with the Lord um, on this journey to Jerusalem. And we keep everybody who is on their own journey to Jerusalem, whatever that might be. We all have trials, we all have crosses. So we forget about everything we left behind, everything that we will go back to, and we focus on being with each other, and we focus on our course material this evening. And we pray. Walking the way of the cross with Jesus, we see how closely he is connected to our own sufferings. We reflect on the times we have struggled, stumbled, and needed help. We realize anew that Christ suffers with us. And in a special way, we feel a connection to all those who have struggled with the coronavirus pandemic. So as we follow the way of the cross during these challenging times, we walk with all who feel alone, frightened, sick, or helpless, and pray that we may, like Simon, help one another carry the crosses of life with courage, with selflessness, and with hope. Amen. Amen. Uh, in case you're interested, this uh, was a little um, introduction to the way of the cross with Pope Francis, um, a book that I uh, received from um, Monsignor Vicari at Kinoa. Uh, okay. So uh, the first thing I would like to do, and I'm sure you're anxious, uh, you all got your papers, your assignments back, right? And I just wanted to review how um, I grade and what it means. And uh, first of all, I want to tell you, you're all on the right track. Don't be, don't worry about the number that I gave you, all right? Um, some of them were a real home run, all right? Um, you saw all the comments that I made, and I just want to make it clear. I know it looks like a lot of red and a lot of track changes, but that's meant to help you. That I feel I have a responsibility as the teacher to help you to do the best work that you can. And I, I take that from my own experience through the years with different um, professors, that's how I learned, by the feedback. So that's why I offer it to you. Um, I want to help all of you, uh, whether you're in this course for credit or for non-credit, um, I want you to be able to write well, because as ministers in the church, you're going to have to write a probably eventually bulletin articles, perhaps letters, memos, you name it. So we all need to know how to write well. Those of you who are in for credit, I will admit that I was a little harder on you, um, especially those of you who are in the track to do a thesis. I was very hard on you, particularly with format. Um, I've been an editor for publishing companies and I am um, fascinated by format. <laughs> so um, a lot of you uh, saw those corrections. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, I, I made comments 
uh, with some, and there were so many of them, and I graded them over the week, so I'm not even sure, and it doesn't matter whose, but I picked up on certain things. For example, the language of the church. And if you didn't quite use the proper or appropriate language that the church uses, I put a comment. For example, CCD, we hear it all the time, but you will learn when we do the session on catechetical ministry that it's a, we should not be referring to our religious education programs as CCD. That is a term that died out over 50 years ago. It's antiquated. And I'll do a whole history of that with you. That's one thing. The other thing is, it's not Eucharistic minister. It's extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. That's the proper language of the church. So, so some of you might have noticed comments like that because part of learning is, is, is grasping the appropriate language. And in our case, particularly the language of the church that the church uses, um, it's ex extremely important for uh, anybody who's ministering the church to understand the appropriate language and to use the right language because words give meaning to what we're doing. All right. So, for example, extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, the ordinary minister of Holy Communion is the priest or the deacon. An extraordinary minister of Holy Communion is a, a, a lay person. So that's that's important. And that has gone through various changes through the years. It, it was at one time called Eucharistic minister, but somebody was smart enough to say, no, that's not the right language. So, so it changes. And we are very often not um, up to date uh, with the changes that occur. But again, this is something that as ministers in the church, we all need to make sure that we are up to date with any, any changes that occur. The other thing <clears throat> I wanted to mention was that um, I didn't really take off or deduct points for format or grammar, because I know some of you um, that English is a second language were concerned about grades, but I really do take that into consideration. Um, so if, if you felt that your grade was lower than you expected, it means basically that I wanted to see more integration um, more evidence of the connection with course material and your pastoral or pers uh, personal experience. So the, um, uh, other than that, does anybody have a question about um, my grading comments or anything? Track changes? Did it all, I hope you all took the time to read through them. Mm -hmm. Because when you submit your second paper, I, I don't want you to make the same mistakes. Oh, because, oh, let me just mention one other thing. Um, and then you can ask me questions, okay? Uh, one of the common, there were some common um, mistakes, all right? One was the citation, and I know I said it's reflection. You don't have to worry about footnotes, but if you're quoting, you need to cite it 
okay? And all of you did that, whether you did it parenthetically or footnote, perfectly fine. And I know the samples I sent you did have footnotes, but one of the common mistakes was the citation of um, church document, for example, like the joy of the gospel, all right? Um, I have it right here. Um, Evangelii Gaudium. Now, church documents in general, if you're citing it, you always do it parenthetically, meaning in parentheses. All right, here's where I wish I had a blackboard, but I, I don't have the whiteboard up here. Um, you always cite a document parenthetically with the abbreviation from the Latin. So the joy of the gospel is EG, and then the paragraph number, no comma. So EG space 25, close parentheses, period. The first time you cite it, you footnote it so that the reader knows the edition because there's various editions of, of this, different publishers, for example. And subsequent citations, you just do it parenthetically. You don't have to footnote it every time. So that's a common mistake. Another common mistake is, uh, uh, and there's one space after punctuation, not two. All right, a lot of you did two spaces. And I know that's a change, uh, but it's not a recent change um, in, the, in the format that we use. The other common mistake was that if you have quotation marks, the punctuation is inside the quotation mark, not outside, all right? Uh, two other things that I'll mention all of your work should be double-spaced, not single-spaced. In a couple of um, instances, I change the format because it's easier for me to read if it's double-spaced. But um, all work should be submitted double-spaced. And also 12-point font. Some of you uh, did 11-point font. And all of this comes from the Chicago style that we have summarized in our St. Joseph's um, writing guides. So those were the most common mistakes that I picked up in practically everybody's paper. Um, maybe not everybody, but maybe 98% of you. Uh, but does anybody have any question or concern? Don't be shy. <laughs> I'm here to help. You're all good. into the parish since I feel like I'm not really part of a parish right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm not. Okay. It's integrated. Yeah. It, that's okay. And that, that was perfectly fine what you did. It's, it's connection either with your pastoral or personal. Either way. However you want to do it. A lot of people gave me personal stuff. And that's perfectly fine. I get, I got to know you all so well through these papers, which I appreciate. I love that part. But what I'm looking to see, I love hearing your story and I want to hear it, whatever it is, whether it has to do with your visit to the nursing home 
or uh, somebody, like you said, on the, the street. Um, all of that is well and good. But what I'm looking for is more connection with the reading or something you heard in class. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, that there's more of that. And those of you whose numbers were lower, seven or eights, that was the issue, not grammar, uh, not anything format, because I, as I said, I didn't deduct. If I deducted for format, um, all of you, most of you wouldn't have done well. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I didn't. And um, my aim was to teach you the correct format so be aware of it so that the next time it's better. All right, and if you're using footnotes to make sure they're right. And the thing about that, and those of you who are in my thesis mentoring class have heard this, but the thing about it is, or you will hear it, the thing about it is when I write a footnote, I need to check the writing guide. I don't have it etched in my memory how to write a footnote because I'm not gonna waste my time memorizing that. It, to me, it's a waste of time. I have a writing guide that I keep right here on my desk. It's right here. And I have it tabbed, bibliography and notes. And whenever I write, I keep it on my desk and I look it up, I glance over it. Cause I don't, I know, I don't remember. And as you know, bibliography and footnotes are different. So we don't waste your time trying to memorize it. Uh, that's my opinion and my experience, but um, refer to it, um, you know, and and you get better at it and better at it. And, and the other thing is proofread your papers. And if English is your second language, uh, my friends, you're doing really great. Um, talk to your classmates, find somebody who can help you proofread your work a classmate, a friend, a neighbor, uh, a family member, somebody who can proofread for you. Uh, for, for one of you, it was obvious that you had a good proofreader to help you because I know that uh, there's a struggle with the language. So in my experience, when I was at Fordham, um, we had a lot of international students and even with our seminarians, we, we get people to help them proofread, not with content, you know, that's not a matter of plagiarism or dishonesty. It's a matter of helping, you know, uh, with that. So uh, maybe some of you, uh, you know, need to do that. And if, and if you have a question about it, just email me privately and, and I, I can help you as well. All right. Any other questions? Thank you, Victoria. That was good. You're good. You're all right. All right. You guys are the best. So we're going to move on tonight. And again, I apologize if my energy level isn't the best, but we'll get there, right? So um, let's see what we're going. We're here. We are session five already. We're almost to midterm, two weeks away from the middle of the term. It goes so quickly. Um, you know, last week, if you remember, we uh, focused on discipleship, right? in relationship to ministry. Everything that we talk about in this class is always in relationship to ministry. All right, we saw how uh, Kathleen Cahallon, the author of one of your texts, refers to 
discipleship is the self-identity and shared common calling to all members of the Christian community. And um, she makes the point, and this is going to lead us into our discussion tonight, she makes the point that discipleship comes out of baptism. And vocation is a distinct call that comes out of being a disciple, and ministry is a distinct vocation within the Christian community. But the important point here for tonight's discussion is going to be baptism. Discipleship comes out of baptism. And um, I don't have to read it for you because I know you've read it in the Cahalan book, but she has a very nice um, description and commentary on the meaning of discipleship. Uh, particularly if you want to make a note, you can check out page 22 um, of her book. So, um, um, I alluded to the fact that uh, the practice of ministry, that phrase that we've been using, the practice of ministry that comes from Cahalan, is rooted in something more. That um, it's rooted in response. If you remember last time, I think it was, we talked about call and response. So this response, what I want to get at is... Um, first manifest in our baptism or better yet I even want to go beyond baptism and talk about the three sacraments of Christian initiation baptism confirmation and Eucharist and kind of link them together uh, because when we put the seven sacraments in a category uh, those three sacraments are in the same category the sacraments of initiation so what we're going to focus on tonight is the three sacraments of initiation, beginning with baptism, but in relationship to ministry. Uh, because as I had mentioned to you last week, I am of the mind that the sacraments of initiation are a guiding theme for the future of all ministry. Uh, that's initially where all ministry comes out of. It comes out of uh, the sacraments of initiation, particularly first and foremost from baptism. All right, so far so good, you with me? So here, what you see here is I just made some references to some documents. Um, let me explain, because I wanna frame what we're talking about and make it clear how this idea applies to uh, priesthood, that's the program of priestly formation, um, specifically um, paragraph 21 refers to the sacraments of initiation, uh, Lumen Gentium that we talked about already, um, that uh, chapter that we looked at, the universal call to holiness. Um, then there's uh, the National Directory for the Formation, Ministry, and Life of Permanent Deacons. If you were to look at 23, 22 and 23, um, it would also um, refer to this, uh, what we're talking about, uh, this whole idea of response being rooted in sacraments. Um, then 
co-workers in the Vineyard of the Lord, um, which I uh, think I mentioned a few weeks ago. That's a document. I have it right here. Uh, the uh, subtitle is A Resource for Gu Guiding the Development of Lay Ecclesial Ministry. This is a document that um, hardly anybody has ever heard of. Um, which is so sad. It came out from USCCB in 2005. Um, I did a lot of research on it, and I actually designed a course, an elective that I'm going to be offering this summer uh, on this document, because lay ecclesial ministry is something that is um, uh, broadly misunderstood, uh, depending on which diocese you're from. Um, so, but anyway, um, Co-workers uh, makes this connection that I'm talking about with the sacraments um, on pages 7 to 12. And in co-workers, there's a section called Ministry, Serving the Church and Its Mission. And there are many good references that highlight uh, what we're talking about. Uh, so I, I just offer this all to you because I think that it's important, again, um, to be familiar with these documents um, as ministers of the church, um, uh, that at least you know that they exist and they have a lot in common, starting with the Second Vatican Council documents and then working through priestly formation, diaconate formation, and lay ecclesial ministry formation. There are, there's a lot of overlap that uh, isn't often recognized. But one of the overlaps, which I'm talking about tonight, is this whole idea of the sacraments of initiation uh, really is the foundation here. Or what I referred to in a chapter I wrote in a book, I referred to it as the guiding theme for ministry. Uh, that it all basically, we're all here, in other words, due to these sacraments of initiation. All right? Um, let's see. Um, so baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. That's basically what we're going to focus on tonight. But remember, in relationship to ministry, all right? I mean, we could talk about these sacraments in relationship to a dozen other things, but for us, we want to look at them and how they relate to 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 minister, the practice of ministry. All right. So um, the baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. First of all, you can see on the screen express the reality that we all have the responsibility of sharing the ministry in the church, the mission of the church. All right. Um, and that goes back to that whole idea of this universal call to holiness uh, that we read about in, um, that I referenced really in Lumen Gentium. And so baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist really awaken this call to holiness. That if you were to read the ritual texts of these sacraments, particularly baptism and confirmation, because the Eucharist is the Mass. Um, but there is uh, definitely 
um, references to who we are as those who are those who share in divine life. For example, um, one of my favorite lines in the Eucharistic prayer that yours that my sacrifice and yours. The priest says that meaning his sacrifice and ours. Uh, 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 you know, pointing out to the assembly. So it's all of us together that are sharing in this. Uh, Kathleen Cahallon, uh makes reference and she says, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist calls us to live in a particular way uh, and practice a particular way of life. So certainly we have to, and this is a little bit of sacramental theology in here tonight, uh, you all didn't have that course, am I right? It used to be in your curriculum, but we took it out um, kind of sadly, but I try to sneak it in wherever I can. And here it is tonight. But baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist really do, they're our identity, um, basically, of who we are. These sacraments of initiation, these sacraments that really do uh, give us our identity and basically of, of the identity of being part of the body of Christ, of sharing in divine life, all right? It starts in baptism, it's strengthened with confirmation, and it's nourished daily, if we choose to, with Eucharist. So there's a very close connection uh, with all of them. I currently teach a course to the seminarians uh, on confirmation, and then we do the uh, rite of Christian initiation as well. But uh, in the course on uh, the section of the course on confirmation, we basically study the ritual text. And if you were to look at that, it's called now it's called it's been revised the order of confirmation. Um, it in all of its introductory comments, in all of its prayers, it constantly refers back to confirmation and it looks forward to Eucharist. So the ritual prayers of the church itself uh, very nicely uh, show the interplay of these three sacraments, okay? So uh, when we relate this to ministry, uh, we want to do that as well, because again, these sacraments are expressing the reality um, that we all have the responsibility to share in the mission of the church, whether we're ordained, going to be ordained, or we are not ordained. Um, and ultimately, we do the we share in the mission of the church for the life of the world. Okay. Um, let's see. Okay. So remember, and this is from Thomas O'Meara, who I introduced you to a few weeks ago, the Dominican Thomas O'Meara. He he says Christian ministry is the public activity of a baptized follower of Jesus Christ flowing from the Spirit's charism. This is language that Kathleen Cahallon uses that you've all, I'm sure, have read by now. And an individual personality on behalf of a Christian community to proclaim, serve, and realize 
the kingdom of God. All right? And remember, his book is about a theology of ministry. So he's really alluding to baptism and the gifts of the Holy Spirit within us as well. Okay? Um, you're good? You're with me? Making sense? Uh, this is really rich, I think, uh, to me, as, as a sacramental theologian, liturgist, and a practical uh, pastoral minister. I, I love uh, making these connections. I think it's so important, and we can, we can really do a lot on the behalf of the people in our parishes when we really fully understand uh, these connections. Um, so what I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about now is this call to active participation. We talked about the call to holiness um, by virtue of our baptism. Well, there's this also this call to what the documents of Vatican II call active participation. And we basically see this particularly in Sacrosanctum Concilium. I'm sorry I didn't put the English here for those of you who haven't taken liturgy. But Sacrosanctum Concilium is the constitution on the sacred liturgy, okay, if you want to make that in your notes. Uh, Lumen Gentium, which we've talked about, is the dogmatic uh, constitution on the church. And Gaudium et Spes is the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. But they all talk about this call to active participation. And so I want to just kind of um, let that unfold to what that means. Because on the surface, it means uh, something different than what it means really um, uh, in, a, in a deeper way. Uh, you'll see that, I think, in a few more slides. But um, the first bullet point, as the baptized, first of all, it means we are children of God united in the body of Christ. So we participate in the body of Christ. We're members, all right? Active membership in the body of Christ entails making a commitment to care for the whole body. So part of this active participation is caring for each other. This is very Lenten, you know, that whole almsgiving, uh, you know, um, uh, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. The almsgiving is the caring for, for each other, either monetarily uh, supporting each other through stewardship, our gifts and our talents. That's participation, all right? Um, and active membership invites participation in ministry, all right? Uh, ministry is something that, um, and we talked about this before, about recruitment that the best thing is inviting people to actively participate in uh, ministry, okay? That's, uh, I mean, that could be a whole session in itself, recruitment. Uh, in fact, um, I have a book coming out in the summer, I think, and it's all about recruitment to initiation ministry. And I am, and I am one that is very against uh, bulletin articles or announcements from you know, uh, the altar, 
uh, just asking for people. I like personal invitation, getting to know our people, uh, inviting them is the most effective. Uh, looking for people's gifts. And, and the, we've talked about this in discussion uh, through the weeks. I know it came up, uh, maybe it was last week or the week before, I forget. Um, but anyway, what this is what I want to get at here. There are many levels of participation. Beyond the visible is, is what I mean here. Um, in the document on the liturgy, SC Sacrosanctum Concilium, as I've said before, you always use the Latin abbreviation. Um, to it says in paragraph 30, to promote active participation, the people should be encouraged to take part by means of acclamations, responses, somnity, antiphons, and songs, as well as by actions, gestures, and bodily attitudes. Now, this is relating to the liturgy. And I put this here because we're all familiar with the phrase active participation in regard to the liturgy. And this statement is absolutely correct that, um, you know, in 1964, when this document was promulgated, um, it, it called for um, active and conscious participation meaning that we sang the hymns, we prayed the prayers, etc. But I want to get at something a little bit deeper here. Um, uh, that go. This is true, but I want to go a little bit beyond it. So here you see I have that this document suggests that visible involvement in the liturgy leads to deep participation in the life of faith. Visible meaning that we, we, we hear people singing, we see them uh, gesturing, etc. That's visible, what we see, all right? Active participation involves faith and openness to God's presence and initiative. Because when, and, and there's overlap here, and one leads to the other. But what I want to get at here for us in relationship to this connection with the practice of ministry is the last bullet point. That active participation in the liturgy, for example, calls us to participate in something deeper, and that is Paschal mystery. And that's really what the Second Vatican Council meant by active participation. That active participation didn't only mean singing the hymns and praying the prayers and uh, standing, sitting, kneeling, folding our hands, etc. meaning gesture. It means that we are called to participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is really important that because the call to active participation is much deeper than it's than meets the eye you, you see what i'm getting at here that and lent is the perfect time to reflect on this because as i said before we're journeying to jerusalem with our lord uh you know and and we do this all the time in liturgy but 
the connection with ministry is it, it it's reflected in our ministry it's reflected in our way of life in other words and here it is i have it up and kathleen Cahallan agrees with me <laughs> because um she talks about paschal mystery and ministry and on page six she says follow following that's that section where she has all the different categories of ministry but she talks about following becomes more complex as the path to suffering and death becomes the root with some disciples who continue to follow including a few who stand at the foot of the cross anoint and bury him basically in my mind and in my experience this connection with um it, it of living this paschal life if you will of participating in paschal ministry means that we do stand at the foot of the cross and we foot we often stand at the foot of the cross because of our own trials but very often as ministers we're standing at the foot of the cross of another's cross i mean george was so george schiffrile was so gracious in sharing uh, right now he he is at the foot of the cross with his dad you know and and we've all had those kinds of experiences in our life but that's living the paschal mystery and we are called to that so what i want to get at for you is this deeper implication in active participation so whenever we are participating in the celebration of the eucharist that we are participating in the paschal mystery of jesus christ that every time we are there praying the eucharist participating celebrating in eucharist that we are participating in the life death and resurrection of jesus let me give you a practical example this today this morning I had to drive my husband uh, to work because he can't drive yet. And he had to play two masses. So one of them I attended as my mass for this morning. And I was chatting with the cantor. And because of COVID, um, in this parish, the cantors can choose to sing from up in the choir loft to be away from the people. Or if they feel comfortable and they are mass, they can go down and lead the singing from the front. So, and there's no hymn books, at least in Rockville Center, we don't have hymn books, programs, nothing that anybody is touching. So they're basically participating on the surface by memory. So the hymn, and they're trying to keep the hymns uh, familiar and repeating week after week so people are familiar. But this is my point, a comment the cantor made to me today he said, I feel badly because they all can't participate, meaning because they didn't have a hymn book. Or, and I said, but they are participating, even if they're not singing. They're participating interiorly. You know, that, that, that we have to often remember that we are participating even if we are, let's say, um, uh, 
listening to the choir singing a motet or just listening to the organ playing meditative music. We can participate. In other words, we're never passive. You, you see what I'm getting at here by using that example? So I, I, I just said my opinion is they are participating, even if they're not, if they can't sing with you. They're participating, you know, in, in, in their interior, they are. And people, <clears throat> older people, uh, older than me, who were so used to mass and Latin, for example, you know, when we switched to the vernacular um, after the Second Vatican Council, you know, a, a lot of it was, oh, now we can participate. But older people would argue that and say, no, even though I didn't understand the language, I was participating at a, at a depth, at a deep level. Uh, so we, we, uh, my point of bringing this all up, we, we, I want you to understand active participation at its deepest level, what we are called to participate in, and that's ultimately in Paschal Mystery. And we're called to do that when we are participating in the celebration of the Eucharist or uh, any other sacrament, basically. Paschal Mystery is the what drives all of the sacraments. And it should be what drives our everyday life. That even the pandemic, if we look at this, it's almost a year now. If we look at it, in light of Paschal mystery, it will make sense to us. And uh, looking at it in that light, we can find meaning. Uh, I think Dan Condon and I, we had a conversation about this in a one-on-one -on -one meeting, but finding meaning in it rather than just blowing the year off, you know? Um, in other words, uh, I had a, a chat with my own spiritual director at the beginning of the pandemic and he said to me don't miss the meaning in this time don't miss it you see that everything has meaning for us and, and we can't uh, miss it and i believe that if we have uh what i think i have coming up on a slide yeah develop a paschal spirituality uh, which I have um, really in my own prayer life tried to develop over the past 30 plus years, this whole idea that my spirituality, the way that I live is constantly looking at the Paschal mystery of Jesus Christ. And everything that I do is related to that. And I, and I bring this up in this course because I believe that as pastoral ministers, in whatever capacity it is, as pastoral people, you know, we, we need to do this. If we're going to be in any way effective to with others, you know, if we're gonna be effective at somebody's bedside, we need to be able to look at life through this set of lenses. So the point here is, is that the foundation for developing a Paschal spirituality is the integration of the sacraments of initiation in our lives. Does that make sense? Does anybody have a question or a comment? I heard some, 
Yes, who's that? It's Chris. Chris, yes. Go ahead, Chris. Two things. I, I was the, uh, we just started singing the Psalms again back at church. Okay. And I was the cantor at 1215. I can hear the, the congregation singing, I mean, loudly. And they're singing the hymns, they're singing the, so they are participating. Mm-hmm. Second, second comment I make, and, and this actually came from um, Deacon Jerry, who runs our diaconate program. Oh, yeah, I'm so fond of him, yes. He, he challenged us probably two years ago that when we, you know, my piece I leave you, uh, my piece I give you during the Mass, he, he challenged us to prepare for that and actually receive Christ's peace. And uh-huh. do we actually participate in the Mass to the degree that we actually accept Christ's peace during the Mass, or do we just hear the words? And yeah. that really changed that whole component of, 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 of participation, I think, in the Mass, instead of just looking through the Mass as words, but actually looking at the piece of the Mass of, of actually participating. So I, I share that. But No, that's true. When you bring up that point about, you know, uh, peace, you know, uh, I mean, with COVID, we're not offering each other the sign of peace, but certainly the sentiment is there. You know, Jesus. And, and all the old timers are still offering. I know they are. They're <laughs> waving and all that. And uh, again, as a liturgist, uh, people don't know what that means. But anyway, what it means is that we are participating in the peace of Christ, the peace that the world cannot give. But we can, we have it. If we hear it, if we internalize it, if we grasp it if we're open to it christ's peace is there for us that's what i i'm hearing you say absolutely and we can share it with each other absolutely absolutely it's uh yeah and help you know people that are not peaceful help by as ministers you know how many people do you know who are not at peace but we can offer them this peace of Christ. If we are living this kind of a spirituality, it will it will emanate from who we are, you know. Uh, and I think we all know peace people like that. Um, you know, I I know my daughter-in-law said to me once when she she met this uh, priest that I know. She said he was so peaceful. He gave me such. He made me so calm. And it was just by, you know, a few words, you know? Uh, and I think we all have met people like that, or I, I, perhaps we wouldn't even be here if we didn't have people in our life that brought us uh, uh, to that. But the point here is, as we're being formed for ministry, that we need to work on this ourselves and, and pray for it and, and deepen it is what I wanna say. I had my mentor and now good friend from my doctoral work. He had an expression in every class he taught. And and this was courses on education, but um, really with a religious twist. But he would always, and he would use a gesture, and he would say, you always have to go deeper. And he would do that. And I could picture uh, Dr. Scott doing that. And he would say, you have to go deeper, go deeper, go deeper, you know? And as, as, as Catholic Christians, as graduate students of theology, 
um, as people in formation for ministry, we always have to go deeper. It's never, we can never settle. Oh, it's good enough. It's deep enough. No, don't settle. Beg the Lord, help me to go deeper. Help me to understand you. Help me to see you. Help me to be open to you, you know? Um, and, you know, the Lord wants us to ask him. He wants us to do that. And um, it's a beautiful thing. And all you have to do is read the saints. They all went deeper, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. You see? And that's it. Go ahead. Who's that? I was going to say, doesn't that relate to everyone in the pews, too? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Because... You know, it's good for ministries and ministers to do that, but everybody should be participating oh. and, and, and actively participating in, in, in Christianity as opposed to reciting and memorizing and just oh, doing everything. Yes. Oh, Jim, thank you for saying that because I want to clarify. I, I do mean it for everybody. Absolutely. By virtue of our baptism. But those of us in ministry, we need to help other people be aware of that. That's right. the Hey, people are not aware of it. And I know that in my pastoral life, when I was working in the parish, it was always my goal. Just bring people, parents, a catechist, teachers, uh, bring them to this awareness, uh, you know, because it's going to make us all. Could you imagine a whole assembly of people? I can, I can see this as a great homily or a group of homilies. Yeah. People to participate. Yeah, yeah. But as a minister, it should start from us, and parishioners can follow us in a good thing. Absolutely, and I don't want to make us exclusive. I don't mean that. I, we're, we're the witnesses to other people. We're the teachers for other people. We're the ones who are going to invite. Look, so I was the person in the pew that somebody invited me into a ministry and we know yeah. the washing us yeah and that's what we need to do you know um and we need to be able to see this in other people uh or the potential for it and that's what i meant about the um inviting people into a ministry i can remember distinctly there was this gentleman in the parish and i just watched him his interaction with people, um, how he worked so hard. Um, he was an usher. Um, I, I think that's it at that point. But I just watched how he interacted with people. And I went up to him one day and I said, did you ever think about becoming a catechist? He said, oh, no, me? I said, you know what? think about it. I'm inviting you to come and talk to me to learn more about what it means to be a catechist. And he did. And he became the best catechist, particularly for young people, seventh, eighth graders, all those kids that nobody wants to teach. And then eventually for adults in the, um, for the right of Christian initiation of adults, and he is still doing that. And I think he coordinates the, the process in the parish that I left. But, it, but I invited him because I saw something there. You see? So absolute, Jim, you bring out a really good point here. This isn't just for us. I want every single person in the pew 
to understand the level of participation that they are invited to. And it's up to us to help them because um, the majority of people don't understand, uh, but they need to be taught. So you're right, it makes for a perfect homily. I'm giving you homily materials <laughs> for when you're, you're out there preaching. Dr. Eschenauer. Um, yes. Like I, I shared earlier tonight, um, yeah, um, right now, and it's hard for me to even read that 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 phrase from Callan, um, you know, about the pain and suffering of death uh, becomes the root. Um, you know, these past, well, since Thursday, mm-hmm. you know, watching my dad in in his hospital bed, um, you know, knowing knowing what the outcome is going to be. Um, this course, and like I said, uh, Father Chris Organis, um, has given me strength to get, to get through, um, to get through this. And even speaking with my dad, you know, just telling him that, you know, you know, you're not in this alone. You know, you, you know, you've got me, you've got my sisters, you've got, you know, God, God is at your side. Um, you know, mom is there waiting for you on the other end. Um, but I, you know, um, it's hard to, to see this, that it could be, it could be tonight, I could get a call at, at any given moment, or it could be six months from now. Right. It's just, um, it's a slow, slow process. And, you know, even you mentioning, you know, I never kind of thought of me, yeah, you know, I'm standing, standing at the foot of the cross, um, you know, I'm not asking why, you know, and that's, you know, that's not the, the thing, my, my, at peace is that he doesn't suffer, you right. know, that takes him peacefully, gracefully, and gives him the dignity. Um, you know, he's lived a, a long life. He's, you know, almost 79. It is relatively young, but my father's got a lot of other underlying yes. health issues. Yes. But, um, yeah. you know, being, being in a place that I am right now, um, has given me a lot of solace and strength to to get through this, to be uh, supported for my dad, to be supported for my sisters. Yeah. Uh, not to say that the loss will be any less for me, but I think I have a better grip, concept, understanding. Yeah. I, 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 George, I totally understand what you're saying. I've had a lot of loss in my life. I lost my sister last year. Um, uh, the loss of Father Kevin O'Reilly, he was my closest colleague at St. Joseph's. And uh, do I miss him? Absolutely. But when he died, the, the scripture um, passage, John 14, do not let your heart be troubled, immediately came to mind to me. And it does, like you said, it doesn't make it any less, but it helps you to understand that he is with the Lord, you know? It's the ultimate goal. Exactly. It's the ultimate goal. We are born, you know, uh, I heard this, um, I've been doing some continuing education with the Liturgical Institute recently, and the professor, this Benedictine monk, and this is totally out of context, but he he said to, to die is not the worst thing. 
to die and go to hell is the worst thing. <laughs> and in other words, he, what he was getting at, it's how we live and how we view. But, you know, God made us to be with him. This is what I think a lot of people may not understand and look at death as the saddest thing. And where it, and I don't mean to sound cold because it is sad. Um, but when we look at this, this Paschal spirituality, and we look at um, people who have died are in their eternal reward. You know, it, it makes everything different, you know, and that they are still with us. See, that's the thing, that, that they are still with us. You know, look, think about the communion of saints. You know, that's one of my favorite lines in the uh, creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. That everybody, when I'm praying uh, that prayer, I usually do the rosary at night. I, it's like I can feel this, to use a phrase, the cloud of witnesses there, here, present. And that's how we can look at even our loved ones. You know, Father O'Reilly is going to be with me, guiding me through, you know, the academic office, I think. And with all of you, look at what he did for those of you. I think you all have, most of you had him as a teacher. So, you know, so George, I, I know exactly what you're, you're saying and what you're experiencing. And I think that we, we've kind of hit a nail on the head here uh, to try to get at it. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that it's, it's somehow strengthening you, but it's, it's the right track, uh, to be on, you know, uh, I think, in, uh, instead of being devastated, the Lord, uh, in that phrase, and for, forgive me if I'm repeating it, but do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus is actually giving his disciples a commandment there. Do not let. And that means we have a choice. We can let our hearts be troubled or not, right? And if we if we could either uh, stay on the human level and be troubled and devastated, or we can look for the graces. So that's the choice Jesus is giving us in that little phrase. Do not let your heart be troubled. And from what I understand, and I'm not a scripture scholar, the Greek is even more accurate. The translation would be stop letting your heart be troubled. Stop. So Jesus is emphatic, you know? So I think, you know, when I, I think this is such the such a value to theological education that that we can we can own this, that we can integrate this into our lives. And, and develop this kind of a spirituality that we can um, take Jesus with us through, through any trial or struggle. And it doesn't mean that it'll be less. Look at Jesus in the agony of the garden. You know, look at it. And how often are we in the garden, you know, with him? Uh, and he wants us there and he invites us there. Uh, and he, he, we, in that case, we have to look at our trials and our struggles as graces and look for the meaning in them. 
because they all have meaning, you know? But um, I think, again, I just think, and then as ministers, uh, I want to say that we just have to try to help people to see this. One more personal example, and then I'll give you a break. It's a little after eight. My sister, who was very ill for 11 months with cancer, older than me, last died last September uh, when I was on sabbatical. But um, I don't want to say she wasn't religious, but she really wasn't involved to the extent that we all are. You know, she definitely was Catholic, believed in, the, you know, uh, Jesus and God and all that. But as she suffered during her last days, I didn't realize it was her last days. They got me on the phone. Her son said, we have to call Aunt Donna because <laughs> she's the one, whatever. But my point here is this that I want to share. She said to me, I know God has a plan. And she said, but I have a plan. And I mean, her plan was she didn't want to die, but she was suffering terribly, could barely breathe. And I, I said to her, I said, number one, this is a time to think about the things of heaven, not about everybody else's life, because she was always fixing everything for everybody. I said, think about the things of heaven. And I said, the cross is a place of glory. Just off the top of my head, I wasn't trying to preach to her. And I just said those words, you know? And it turned out that she died two days later and peacefully, peacefully. And her children were there and heard those words. And she had a cross in her hand. And uh, Jim and Chris, you know Steve Hodson, he gave me one of those wooden crosses his father makes. Yep. You, might, you yep. might know. He, yep. gave, he gave me one to give her. Well, she never let go of it. And it was wood, so she could take it in scans and everything like that. And she died clutching that cross. So you see, it was just just providing her with the language to realize that this isn't terrible, you know, that that heaven is what I can look to and not worry about what I'm leaving here. And those were my final words to her, you know, and I was very peaceful with her death and like George I thought maybe she'd have six weeks planning to go see her in hospice and she had like a day and a half so you don't know but um it was it, you know it was it just creating an awareness in her that she didn't really internalize and I I needed to give her the language so we can do that for people when they're open to it some people would say oh don't don't tell me about God. You know what I mean? And then, okay. But when people are open, they're going to hear it. I hope that makes sense, but that came to mind. And I think it's a, a good example of what we're, we're chatting about here. Dean. Yes. I read an article over the weekend that in the United States in the last 10 years, 
atheism has doubled. How yes. sad is that? Uh, yeah, yes. And that basically, uh, that's Bob, right? Yes. Yeah, there, now I see it. Uh, that's basically because we live in a secular age. Yeah. And it's a big, it's a, it's a challenge. When you take God out of everything, then it's, there is no God. Right. And, and we live in a world, and all you have to do is turn on the TV and look at commercials and, you know, it totally secular world uh, that we live in. And um, I think those of us that can um, talk the way we're talking, think the way we're thinking, make the connections like we are, I think it's a real grace. And um, it, it, it certainly is a, a just such a beautiful uh, grace and gift that we need to be thankful for every moment of the day. And pray for those that do not. I mean, that's the fact, I can't quote it exactly, but if you read about the apparitions at Fatima, that's exactly, you know, I think it's something like, I love, I adore, I this, I that, and I pray for those who don't love and adore. Basically, uh, if you look it up, you can Google it, but that's the Fatima prayer, you know, that we do these things, but we pray for those who don't, in other words. And, and that's, you know, um, you're absolutely right. It is. Um, and if we I, don't, when we do die, meet Jesus, if we don't do that, to call Father Neil, we're all in deep caca. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, you see? We are, we are really graced and blessed, all of us. Good for you. And Dr. Now, yes, Victoria. With your, um, do not let your hearts be troubled, like... I want to say, I kept on thinking, like, this is going to be the my only or my first Lent, you know, expecting. I'm like, I'm not sure what to do. I'm due right after Easter, too. So it's like, like this is really like my last 40 days I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> and we just started Lent today. And um, I'm telling my husband, like, I'm like, obviously, I'm not doing anything with food. I'm like, I know. No, you're exempt. <laughs> yes. And I'm telling him, like, well, maybe I should. I, I've always been very good at, like, extremes. Like, like I, I won't do, like, an hour of TV. I'll just be like, and no TV for the next 40 days or something of that nature, you know? And he's like, I don't think you should be putting yourself, like, in any extremes right now because it's just too much going on. And um, he said, like, I know the perfect thing for you. And then he said, like, you should give up worry. And I was like, wow. Like, and now that you just said it again, it brought, like, confirmation again. Like, that is, like, something because there is a lot happening. There's a lot that's going to happen, you know. So, mm -hmm. yeah. That's great. That's a wonderful because the Lord does not want us to worry. What does Padre Pio say? Pray, hope, don't worry. Worry is useless. My mother used to say that if you worry, it means you don't have faith. She used to tell me that when I was a little kid, you know, and uh, I'm a worrier, you know, we all are, but we've got to let it go. We've got to stop ourselves and say, you, and that's this, this spirituality, this way of viewing the world that I don't want to be this anxious person all the time that I want to put my faith in the Lord and put it in God's hands. And that is, um, uh, somebody once said to me, 
but isn't that just being like, oh, letting it go and not even, you know, thinking about it? I said, no, it's harder to let it go. And it's harder to trust. And it's harder to put it in God's hands. It's easier and more consoling if I sit here and cry and worry about it. You see? So I think your husband gave you terrific advice to give up worrying. And that's going to make you spiritually and physically healthier and that will be best for your baby you know that your baby won't be a worrier <laughs> and be a peace you'll have a peaceful baby <laughs> oh that's so great that's great we have easter baby yes yes yes, yes that's great be with the blessing oh it's gonna be so great i can't wait I'm sure. Uh, anybody else want to say anything before we take a little 10-minute break? All right, does it all make sense? Is it coming together, what I'm getting at here? You good? If I don't hear anything back, I'm going to assume you're okay. All right. How about we take a little break? All right, a little 10-minute break. It's about 8.15. Okay, see you at about 8.25. Beautiful. All right, go get a nice, something nice and hot to drink. We're going to have a snowstorm tomorrow. <laughs> All right, I'll see you in a little bit. So let's continue uh, with this. Uh, and again, you know, the focus on this, uh, the sacraments of initiation being the guiding force of who we are as ministers, because everything it's, and I don't, I want to make it clear, this is meant for everybody, but we're focusing on the practice of ministry and what it means for us to be the baptized, the confirmed, uh, people who are, participate in the celebration of the Eucharist, all right? So it makes sense here to me to look at the right of Christian initiation of adults, the RCIA, briefly. I think as I mentioned the first night of class, you'll see it on your syllabus, we do have two sessions dedicated uh, to this right of the church so that as ministers, uh, future ordained deacons, etc. We all understand exactly what this is. But I bring it up here because uh, those of you, and I know I saw it in some of your papers, you are familiar with the rite of Christian initiation of adults. And certainly if you've been to an Easter vigil in your parish, you may, you might have seen um, the elect be fully initiated through adults through baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist all in one event. So... Really, when we look at this ritual text, the RCIA, it affirms the call to active participation on many levels. Because first of all, and I'm looking at this very broadly, and we will narrow it down when we talk about it, but first of all, and very importantly, it places initiation within the community. All right, the RCIA lists the community as the primary minister, um, which is the first document, uh, the first ritual text to do that. 
So uh, that's important. And that tells us that sacraments take place within the community, they're, meaning that they're not uh, private, all right? They're communal celebrations, all right? So again, I'm giving you, I've given you spirituality 101 tonight. I'm giving you uh, sacramental theology 101, all wrapped into pastoral ministry. But it's all related. You see the interplay here. The, an important point to get at here, you see the uh, next bullet point, initiation, meaning those to uh, participate in the celebration of baptism, confirmation, or Eucharist. And I'm looking here as an example within the rite of Christian initiation of adults. But initiation is the responsibility of the baptized. In other words, you and I, as the baptized, we're responsible for the initiation of other people. Now we can expand that and say, well, we're responsible for the initiation of infant, infants being baptized, children coming to first communion, uh, older kids coming to the sacrament of confirmation. We can look at it that way too. But the rite of Christian initiation spells it out uh, for us explicitly. And it also strengthens this biblical identity of the church as the body of Christ. And it does that primarily because it places initiation within the community. And it clearly looks at what Lumen Gentium looks at and what prior to the Second Vatican Council, as I brought up a couple of weeks ago, as far back as Pius X, looked at this mystical body of Christ, this image of the church. But the RCIA makes it a, really a reality uh, because it's calling on the responsibility of the baptized. You see, that's the connection I'm making here. And the whole idea that the initiation sacraments take place in community. So it's a vision and identity that is really vividly expressed at the Easter Vigil. Now, I'm going to assume that every one of you, I think I could safely say, has been to an Easter Vigil. Is that a good assumption? Pretty much? Okay. So you've probably witnessed people coming into um, being fully initiated. So that is the clearest sign that we have of what I'm talking about here. And that's why I bring it up as an example. So on the next slide, you see here the Easter, looking at the Easter vigil, all right, which is this vivid example, okay? Uh, it invites us to look at our own lives, all right, in relationship to the newly initiated, the newly baptized, the newly confirmed, the people coming to the Eucharistic table for the first time. It's, so it's helping us, meaning the whole community, all right, the, the whole parish. It's helping us to look at the meaning of these sacraments in our own life. The Easter Vigil is a clear, explicit example of it, all right? Um, and I love this uh, quote. It always reminds from Karl Rahner, Father Karl Rahner, a Jesuit, a modern theologian, um, very instrumental uh, at the time of the sect before 
during the Second Vatican Council uh, from Germany. But he had this expression that I, heard, that I read years ago and wrote a whole paper about it. And, but he said, it was his feeling, the devout Christian of the future will either be a mystic, one who has experienced something, or he will cease to be anything at all. Uh, that's a profound, bold statement, and in a sense, it goes back to what Bob Levy brought up before about the percentage of people who are atheists. The devout Christian of the future, and he's talking about now, you know, he said this back in the 60s, so this is the future. And so basically he's saying that somebody who is devout will be a mystic meaning one who was experienced or had an encounter with Jesus Christ or will be nothing. You see, you see what he's getting at there? And I, I always bring up that um, quote, especially in relationship to the right of Christian initiation of adults, because people um, are coming to our parishes, to our church, uh, through that right as adults, they, they're having some kind of an experience um, that we mentor them through uh, and minister them through. But uh, does that make sense to you, what I'm getting at here? Uh, but it's very much um, tied up with what Bob brought up. So, you know, um, being a mystic in today's world, and that's in quotation marks because mystic we've all read about and familiar with the mist the great mystics uh saints you know who but um there are mystics i'm sure among us that have had this experience of an encounter with jesus christ and that's what is making us the devout christians that we are this mystical experience this openness to a mystical experience, this openness to supernatural, uh, that we can say, uh, we're not gonna worry. We're gonna put it in God's hands. We're gonna be at the foot of the cross and we're going to trust. That's what he's getting at here. And that is, again, I use it in the example because it's vividly expressed at the um, uh, Easter vigil for us. People see it in action, you know? Uh, very often, with especially at the after the Easter vigil, when people witness adults being baptized, sometimes the reaction of people in the assembly was, "Oh, I wish I could was baptized as an adult and not as an infant." And and I I kind of put on the brakes and say, "But you have what they have, and you're living it out." But people don't realize it. Now use the example of marriage, of a wedding. You know, um, an older couple married a long time might go to a wedding of somebody young like Victoria, you know, <laughs> and say, wow, look at what that couple has. But they have it. And that marriage of the young couple is meant to renew it for them. You see, but it's the same thing here with uh, baptism and the other sacraments. But anyway, uh, what I want to do now is just kind of... Um, isolate uh, these sacraments and relate them to ministry um, uh, to kind of wrap up this section so that we can get a sense of uh, 
kind of in conclusion what I'm talking about here. So, for example, I use this phrase, baptism vests us for ministry. And when I say that, you know, through baptism, we put on Christ, right? That's what I mean by that. So baptism prepares us for ministry, in a sense. Um, and we get this, if you look at the right of Christian initiation of adults, paragraph 229, the, the words from the ritual text say, you have become a new creation and have clothed yourselves in Christ. That's what baptism does for us. It clothes us in Christ. Whether we're baptized as a baby or as an adult, that doesn't matter. Baptism is baptism. But, uh, so, and that, that clothing ourselves in Christ, it prepares us if we're called to ministry. Kathleen Cahallon on page 49, she says how a person lives their post-baptismal commitments in relationship to the practice of ministry. See, um, I, I would venture to say that all of us here, because we're in ministry, we're ministers or in ministry formation, that we are living our post-baptismal commitment. We're living out our baptism every single day, or you wouldn't be here. I, I would safely say that. I, I, I think I'd go out on a limb and say that. And then it's important to realize here that Jesus's baptism in the Jordan really serves as a paradigm for the continued realization of a baptismal spirituality. Because certainly Jesus didn't need to be baptized. And if you, you've all, uh, some, most of you, I don't want to say all of you, I know some of you haven't, but in your study of scripture, uh, Jesus's baptism was a different kind of baptism. You know, John the Baptist's baptism was a, more of a baptism of repentance. But Jesus went through that ritual because it was part of his, his Jewish life. But for him, it was the beginning of his public ministry. So that's why I, I put this here. That serves as a paradigm for us. That it's our baptism that puts us into ministry as well. Even if it was 50 years ago, doesn't matter. You see what I'm saying? Okay, I hope that makes sense. Um, all ministry, in other words, flows from an identity that began at our baptism. You know, I think, um, I don't, again, I teach two classes. I don't know what I say to one class, I forget. Um, but I don't know if I said it in here. In one of the chapters of a book that I wrote that I referenced before about these sacraments, I, I actually, um, reflect in in this chapter that I talk about these sacraments and I made reference to when I used to drive to um, the parish where I worked in Rockville Center I used to pass the church where I was baptized but I could only see like the steeple in the in the background you know I could see it as I drove it was far back but I could see it and I would always remember that I am going to my, my um, profession in ministry every day because of that day that my parents brought me to that church for my baptism. 
So I, I saw that and I reflected on that every day when I saw it. I was grateful for it and thankful for it, you know. And so I was very much aware that my um, my ministry really flowed from my identity that began uh, that day in my baptism. Uh, Kahalan, um she brings up, she says, ministry is the vocation of leading disciples in the life of discipleship. We've said this before, disciples making disciples, right? And we do this for the sake of God's mission in the world. So in other words, the relationship to baptism here is that as the baptized, we are disciples. We're disciples who have been called to the vocation of ministry and we are leading others in discipleship. And perhaps we will even invite others uh, into ministry, as I, I used that example um, uh, prior to that. So you can see these connections. And as you read through the Kahalan text, uh, she does make reference to this, uh, which is why I choose the text. It's so well done. But the main thing here to realize is that you are where you are today, primarily because of your identity as being the baptized. Okay? So we move on to confirmation. We're confirmed. And if you look at the catechism of the Catholic Church, confirmation affirms our baptism. That is the theology of it. It affirms, it strengthens, um, and that's what, what it means. Um, so it's very connected to our baptism. In fact, in the ancient world, it wasn't even called confirmation. It was just the anointing after baptism. But um, in my class on confirmation, I go through a whole history of how it became separated. And then by the 12th century, we actually call it confirmation. But anyway, uh, and it was defined as one of the seven sacraments um, at two councils. Uh, one being Trent, I forget the other one, the Council of Lions, I think. But anyway, in confirmation, we are anointed for ministry. Remember, baptism vested, we put on Christ. Here we're anointed in our confirmation, and we all have this, and we're living that out. We've got to remember that day that the bishop sealed us, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, with chrism, and chrism puts an indelible mark on us that never goes away and can never be repeated. So confirmation signifies this promised strength of the Holy Spirit. And you remember, and we talked about it early on, uh, the charisms that the Spirit gives us. And Kathleen Cahalan also refers to that. And that's all by the strengthening of our baptism that we have through confirmation. So the anointing with chrism strengthens the baptized for witness, and it should be full, sorry for the typo, active and conscious participation in Christian life, that is discipleship and ministry. So that goes back to what I talked about before, all right? The anointing with chrism is the source behind the various charisms that are the heart of ministry. All right, because all of the gifts that we have to share uh, with the body of Christ, we have to know where it comes from. This is it, okay? And here we have from the order of confirmation, OC, 
uh, recently revised 2016. It used to be referred to as the right RITE of confirmation. Now it's the order of confirmation. But this is uh, paragraph 24 in the ritual text that gives us, um, and I love quoting from ritual texts, and this is what you would call liturgical exegesis. Those of you who have already taken scripture, you're familiar with uh, biblical or scripture exegesis. This is liturgical exegesis, where we take something from a ritual text and we look at it for deeper meaning. So here we have uh, paragraph 24 from the Order of Confirmation that says, Dearly beloved, let us pray to God the Almighty Father for these his adopted sons and daughters already born again to eternal life in baptism. You see the connection that confirmation, the ritual is making with baptism. That he will graciously pour out the Holy Spirit upon them to confirm them with his abundant gifts and through this anointing conform them more fully to Christ, the Son of God. I put that up here because it shows us clearly the connection of the confirmation and baptism. All right, that it's this strengthening and, and this conformity. Okay, and this is, if we were to really examine this, this is we go to this and this this is um really the this guiding force behind who we are as those in formation for ministry or those who are ministering this is where it comes from the gifts of the holy spirit from baptism and confirmation from this beautiful anointing so it, it's good i think to meditate and think about and really reflect go back to when you were confirmed when you were anointed that you that that indelible mark is there on on your forehead from that day and that's what strengthens you and you have that and it never goes away so the point that I'm making here, and I make to the students in my confirmation, uh, the seminarians that were studying this ritual, is that um, we live it out. It's not just an event that happens, and those of you who are teaching candidates for confirmation, you want to teach them this, help them to, just, to know that their confirmation begins their life as witnesses to Jesus Christ. It doesn't end it. You know, uh, it's a tough thing to get across, but it's the truth. And we need to do that. And that we are called to live out our baptism and our confirmation every day. So for our own lives, we want to we want to meditate on it, contemplate it, what it means and where it has brought us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then finally, Eucharist, nourishment for ministry, right? We need nourishment. We need to nourish our, uh, um, our baptism. We need to nourish our confirmation. So the context for ministry is the church understood as the body of Christ, meaning that we are ministering with people, right? The people of God. And the image of the body of Christ is a theological foundation for participation in the Eucharist. All right, remember, it's, it's both personal and communal. 
And same with baptized. We're, we certainly, through baptism, we're baptized into Jesus, but we also become members of the, the church as well. And um, here, Jesus's command, do this in memory of me, is generally expressed. And as we've said this before in John 13, um, if I, therefore, the master and teacher, have washed your feet, etc. You, you've heard that before. But the Eucharist, we have to remember, is a sacrament of initiation. But, and I think I have it on the next slide, or I don't, I'm not sure. I don't. But my point here is, there's one baptism, there's one confirmation, but Eucharist is the only repeatable sacrament of initiation. That's important. Uh, to realize, because we can be nourished by the Eucharist every single day if we choose to be, or at least once a week, right? So, the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, are a prelude for discipleship and the foundation for ministry. And I want you to really try to think about that contemplate it, meditate it, integrate it into your life. Don't let baptism be an event of your past. Let it be your identity now and how you are living out your life. Because it's in and through the sacraments of initiation that ministers can discover or rediscover this Paschal spirituality that we spoke about earlier. Um, and, and really, um, get meaning out of everything in life by looking at it through the lens of Paschal mystery. A sp Paschal spirituality makes it possible to experience the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ within the reality of our time and space. And <clears throat> the thing here that I bring this all up here, with the sacraments, and we're focusing on the sacraments of initiation, but basically all sacraments, the primary theme uh, is the Paschal mystery. Death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is celebrated uh, in all of the sacraments, and it's there. And to particularly keep this in mind with the celebration of the Eucharist, that that is what is enacted, enacted, here and now, not reenacted. It's not like we're redoing it. We're doing it now. Because when we are participating in the celebration of the Eucharist, we the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is made present for us now. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. And we need to help people to, to understand that in its deepest way that it's made present for us now. Because, and the reason, now the liturgist in me is coming out, but the reason for that is, Jesus said, do this in memory of me. In other words, remember this. See, for the Jewish people, to remember something meant to make it real now. So in other words, take Passover, for example. You know, the, 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 uh, the freedom from slavery coming through the Red Sea. During Passover, the Jewish people are making that present for them today. That it's not just 
something that happened in the past, but that that freedom for slavery is happening for them today. And it's the parallel to that is the Eucharist, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is made present for us now. You see, that's a whole different way of looking at things. And it's truth. It's true life. It's true Catholic Christian doctrine and dogma as well. And it's something that um, at those of us, again, uh, called to ministry, we, we have to make this our, our own and make it a part of who we are, uh, who we want to be, and constantly, again, deepening it, always deepening it, because then we're, we're just going to be more effective in, in anything that we are trying to do. So now I've talked a lot. Talk to me. <laughs> Tell me what you're thinking. Does this make any sense to you at all? Hmm. Do I see thumbs up? Thumbs up. Good, Stephen. Bill. Victoria, good. It makes sense. So you're, you're going to think about your sacraments, right? Can, uh, let me ask you a question. It might be a personal question, but um, I know, Chris, you mentioned to us, I think it was in the other class, though, not this class. But you came into the church from another ecclesial community as an adult, right? Chris Greer. Yes, I was a Presbyterian. Right. So you were confirmed, right? You were uh, received into the full communion of the Catholic Church and confirmed and received communion, correct? Four sacraments in two days. Oh, I know. You're also your marriage. But don't, uh, I don't want to talk about that as a liturgist. <laughs> Reconciliation. Uh, yeah, I know. That's okay. Um, but uh, can I assume the rest of you were uh, baptized as infants? Cradle Catholic. Yeah. yeah. I was baptized as an infant. I was still baptized. I yeah, no, I know that. I know. I, I know that you were, absolutely. But as uh, infants. What about confirmation? Do you, do you all remember it? Yeah? Older. Yeah. I was 25 when I Oh, that's right, Victoria. You were recently, yes. Yes. Yeah, okay. You wrote that in your paper. Yes. Very good. So, you, so you're so really, it's fresh for you. Yes. And that's, a, I want it to be fresh for all of us. I was in the sixth grade, but I, I do remember uh, parts of it. It was before the Second Vatican Council. I'm dating myself. It was in Latin. Uh, it wasn't in Mass. It was very different. The theology of confirmation was different at the time. wasn't considered a sacrament of initiation until the revisions of the Second Vatican Council. But I still, uh, and it was when I was revising a confirmation program for a publishing company for a textbook, and it was it was a disaster. And I really had to fix the theology for them. But it made me. This was a few years ago, and I remember how it made me really meditate on it and what confirmation meant in my own life. And it was really a great, I made it a prayer actually to, to just set this textbook series um, appropriately, but it just brought my confirmation uh, to life and made me realize, wow, I have this. And, and that's what I want you to all do, uh, even if it's not as recent as Victoria's, but think about it. And just think about that you, you have this. 
this this beautiful identity of being clothed in Christ, um, being anointed for for witness, for mission. That's what confirmation means. We don't teach that well enough to our young people at all, uh, in my experience. Um, but we need to. Um, that it is it's uh, amazing, and then all of this is strengthened and remembered when we come to the Eucharist. In other words, to quote a phrase that I wrote in one of my books, we, we come to the Eucharist remembering what happened at the font. That's why there are holy water fonts at the doors of the church. Well, they're empty now because of the pandemic, but the purpose of it is that we come into the church, we bless ourselves. Nobody knows why they do that, but it's to remind us of our baptism. There was a church that my husband used to work in here on Long Island that there was only one entrance to the church. There were several exits, but one entrance. And when you walked in the entrance, there was a huge baptismal pool. So in other words, you couldn't avoid the baptismal font when you entered the church. But there was a theology behind that. We entered the church through baptism. And when I go there every Sunday or every day, whatever, to celebrate the Eucharist, that I need to remember my baptism. That's what we have to teach. People don't know that. And when I, in my pastoral experience, a pastoral minister, when I would bring these things up to people, they'd say, wow, wow, wow. You know, and they never forgot it. So it's, 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 you know, I've given you a lot of stuff, a little bit about a lot of stuff, but it's all related to what we do as, number one is who we are as a person, and then what we bring to others in whatever way that we are called to do that. Make sense? Mm. You got it? Yes. So, that being said, and uh, because I am so utterly exhausted, we're ending early tonight, I hope you don't mind. No. <laughs> I'm sure you don't. <laughs> I don't have to apologize for that, no, right? No. <laughs> Um, and I have such a bad headache. You're so patient with me. You're so nice. Next week, uh, we are going to, it's going to get more exciting. See, we're narrowing down. We're going to talk about mission, vision, evangelization, and parish ministry. It's going to be really good, I think. <laughs> All right. You excited? Yep. <laughs> I see Bill is. <laughs> that's, right. that's the March 3rd uh, um, on, the, on the schedule. Yeah, but remember I revised the schedule. Okay. We're a week, we're a week ahead. We're a week yeah. ahead. Yeah, move everything up. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mentioned that way back, but yeah, we are a week ahead. In the beginning. In the beginning, because I um, combined one and two together, and when I revised my syllabus, I forgot to do it. All right? So, yeah. Good. Thank you, Jim, for bringing that up so everybody else is reminded.
and I'm sorry I sent the notes to you so late today. I almost forgot in my state, my present state, but I think I got, you all got them in time for class. All right, if there's no more um, comments, questions, um, we'll bring it to an end. Um, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was As in the beginning, in the beginning is, is now, now, and will and be, be world, world without, without end. end. Amen. Amen. Saint Joseph, pray for us. Pray for us. O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Have a wonderful, beautiful rest of Ash Wednesday, and I wish you a worry-free Lent. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you feel better. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I will. I'll be great. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody. Take care. Good night. See you next.